To support our work at the Izzy and Murtada Picture Show and the work of other independent creators like us, sign up to listen to the podcast on Nebula. Nebula is the creator-owned streaming platform that hosts great videos and podcasts like the one you're listening to now. Sign up today at nebula.tv slash picture show and you will get access to this podcast plus other great podcasts and videos. Sign up for Nebula and help support independent media creators. That's nebula.tv slash picture show. Hello, I'm Murtada. And I'm Izzy. And this is the Izzy and Murtada Picture Show. This is our first ever episode of this new podcast. Yay. Izzy, I'm so excited and happy to talk to you. We have been talking about doing this for a long time. And finally, we are doing it. We are launching this new podcast about movies because we we love it. I know I'm obsessed. So um, let's tell our listeners a little bit about what we are going to be talking about in this podcast. And despite this intro of mine, it's going to be much more informal than this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of the point, right? We want to have a space where we can get together, talk about things that are happening in film, new releases, books that are coming out about film, things that are happening in the conversations online, things like that. Just a place to kind of come, collect our thoughts, and hopefully have some entertaining and fun guests along the way. And uh get some different perspectives, learn a little bit from each other and enjoy film the whole time. Yes, exactly. Totally what we talk about in our group text. We're going to talk about on this podcast. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, And I think the thing that everybody's talking about, at least everybody I know is talking about these days are the Oscars. The Oscar nominations have been announced. The Oscars are coming soon. So people are catching up on the movies. We're talking about it. Some people are fighting about who's going to win, especially Best Actress, but we're not going to get there immediately, but eventually. <laughs> eventually, yeah. We got to save the best for last. You know what I mean? We can't jump right in. Yes. So for this first conversation, we're going to be talking about the 10 movies that have been nominated for Best Picture and also just our impressions of what this slate of nominees mean and does it reflect the film year. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what your reactions were when you saw all this list of best picture nominees. Were you excited? Were you craving some different selections? What did you think? I mean, with the Oscars, you always crave some distant different selections because they never nominate exactly what you want. Um, And I remember, for instance, last year, I was so disappointed in the nominees because I thought I maybe like two movies of the ones they nominate for Best Picture. But I think this year it's different in that I think there were no surprises. Like if you go granular into the categories themselves, there were surprises. But as a whole, it was what was expected, at least what I was expecting. Kind of being, you know, reading the film year, looking at the other awards, you know, talking to people. Like I think there were no surprises whatsoever. And it, um, and it were the movies that everybody was talking about for awards that got nominated, except for, you know, mm-hmm. one here and there, you find something that maybe oh, that happened. But overall, it mm-hmm. was unsurprising, which doesn't mean it's unexciting, because I think there are at least a few movies that I love that have been nominated, which that's always great. Yeah, that's true. Um, 
I think this year is probably exciting for the Academy itself, like as an institution. One thing that I think the Academy grapples with constantly is this idea that uh, there are certain types of movies that are nominated for Oscars. And every year we kind of hear the same refrain over and over and over again from people mm-hmm. or from like normal people, I guess, <laughs> which is like, oh, you know, I don't want to watch these sad, like boring movies that, you know, no one's ever seen. Why should I care about the Oscars? Blah, blah, blah. And this year, when you look at the nominees, there are a handful, I mean, at least three that I think the average person would know off the mm-hmm. top of their head and mm-hmm. plenty more that are also just like accessible at, for a very general audience um, yeah. that they might be open to seeing after watching the ceremony, which I think yeah. for the institution is really encouraging. And I also think that a lot of those also have a lot of crossover appeal with the more like serious cinephile types. Like a lot yes. of critics I know really enjoyed like top gun or really enjoyed uh, everything everywhere all at once so it's sort of like everyone kind of wins in this situation it just it it dispels a lot of that perception without kind of um well i should say it dispels that perception that is also kind of a false perception (laughs) there this happens more often than i think people give um the academy credit for that like well-liked films end up in this category but it's also true that a lot of yeah, uh, very blatant Oscar baity type films end up in this category as well. I mean, the Academy always nominated the top movie of the year in terms of box office for the most part until the top movie of the year became just Iron Man, Sub Superman, whatever. Exactly, and that's when they stopped yeah. nominating those. But ET was nominated. Um, Out of right, Africa right. was the number one box office movie of that year. Um, and right. so this year you have the number one in Avatar. And I think Top Gun is out there. If it's not number two, it's probably number three. I'm not sure. But I think both of those are the top two movies, at least popular movies that many people bought tickets to. Well, I kind of I think one of the issues that the Academy seems to have is like there's a complete division of the different types of audiences who might pay attention to the Academy Awards. Right. So there's like the average normie viewer who never feels like they have a reason to tune in because they're only watching the Avengers. And then there's like the the Oscar voters who will t- tune in because like their taste aligns with the Academy. Yeah. And then there's like cinephile internet folks who are just kind of pissed and bitter that like Hereditary wasn't nominated. So like the Academy has no taste and therefore why should I care and tune in? Um, yeah. And like, a very rarely you get something that like appeals to all three of these groups. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this year is filled with films like that. Yeah. Which is interesting to me. But where are people like you and me who can also have some disdain for the Academy and think that it never sort of chooses the right movie or the right actor? Rarely do they do that and still follow it religiously every year. We, you know, watch yeah. and talk about it. So there are those people, but I guess we don't really make a dent into um, actual viewership. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think we kind of fall into that third category. We're just like in that small group of people that admits that we watch it instead of pretending we don't care. <laughs> yes, I know. Which I think a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah. So let's dive into these movies. And since we started at, we have a ranking, um, Izzy and I have ranked the top 10 movies. 
which we will reveal as we go along, um, as we talk about them. But our ranking, of course, is different, although we have the same number one. So that movie will be at the top um, of the discussion. Ted guesses what that is. <laughs> if, if you, yeah, if you know us or follow us anywhere, if you ever heard us do any, you would definitely know our top movie of the 10 nominated. But we start, let's start with Avatar because neither of us have it very high, but it is the top movie of the year. Well, okay, to be clear, I don't have it high because I haven't seen it. It is the only Best Picture nomination nominee that I have not seen, so it is unranked. But I think it is one of those movies that like has kind of a lot of cross-audience appeal. Yes. Um. So tell me about it. What did you think when you saw it? Does it deserve to be here? What do you think? So I ranked it at number six. So right in the middle of all these movies because, and that ranking um, maybe says something about what I think of the top 10 movies and also says something about Avatar and that I had such a good time with it. Um, um, I went to a press screening. It was really great. Had a great time. But like when it opened, I don't know, 10 days later, my husband wanted to go again. And he even booked it. He's like, Avatar, let's go. It's going to be fun. And it just realized that I have to sit in the theater watching these blue aliens for another two and a half hours. And I couldn't do it. And I was just like, you go see it. I'll see you after for a drink. And the reason I'm telling this story is that this tells exactly my feelings about Avatar. I never want to see it again. And when people talk about how Avatar has no cultural capital, I think there is a truce to that, even though it makes all everybody goes to see it and it makes all this money and all of that. But also, it's kind of, to me at least, a little unmemorable and an experience that while I enjoyed and thought it was absolutely bread, there are moments in it that are absolutely breathtaking. And the action is so galvanizing and big and huge and you get swept away in it. And it is an absolute exciting time at the movies. I don't want to see it again. And I think that also talks about the story. Like, I don't care about any of these characters. They don't obviously look like real people. So they're at the emotional investment, despite, you know, getting Zoe Saldana or Kate Winslet to do all they can to, or or Sigourney Weaver, who plays a She holds her breath seven minutes for you to never want to see this again, Murtana. Wow. I know. Sorry, Sigourney. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> all of that. Like, you know, the actors are doing work that is to be commendable, but still... It emotionally just I never can connect to those characters. Um, they just keep me at a distance. But I had a great time. And it is the biggest movie of the year. And I understand that why it's been nominated for Best Picture. I'm happy it is. Um, and it's going to be in visual effects. And we won't talk about it until the next one comes out in two years or whenever it is the next one is coming. And then I'll go see it and immediately forget it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I remember seeing the first Avatar and I remember really enjoying it and then sort of falling in line, I guess, is the right way to put it. I sort of just blindly have agreed with everyone without giving it much thought that it no one cares about this movie and it's actually just Pocahontas and you know other common perceptions of this series or slash franchise. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I feel very similarly, which is that... I never wanted to watch the first one again. I clearly haven't sought out this one. Um, so it might just be kind of like a question of what my personal taste is for this specific thing. Although I do, you know what I do enjoy so much? 
Jenny Nicholson's video about the Pandora like theme park in Florida. I think it's in Florida. Um, uh, one of my think, favorite videos on the internet. It's so good. I think you've told me about this before, and I did see that video, and it is really funny. It's a great video. <laughs> I watch it all the time, and I never go to theme parks, and I don't care about Avatar. She's just very good at making those. Anyway, so that's my take on, <laughs> on Avatar. Not much to say about Avatar, but I loved it with reservations. Um, so the next movie <laughs> that we want to talk about, which we both, at the bottom of the list uh, yeah. of our ranking, and that is Top Gun Maverick. Um, is Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like this will make us slightly unpopular, but that's fine with me. I watched this on my iPad, as I'm sure was <laughs> intended by the filmmakers. Uh, and so I'm sure I missed a lot of the, the spectacle of it. You know what I mean? There's, there is a certain kind of spectacle that comes with this kind of movie. Um, so I was really left with grappling with how I felt about its politics. <laughs> that was the thing yeah. I was taking away most from this movie. Um, which and is, I had a very hard time overcoming it. Yeah, which is the one thing they want to avoid. They don't want to think about its politics at all. Well, exactly. Well, I mean, but that's the thing is like, by being apolitical, you're still being political. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Like the idea, you know, the idea of like, casually making a movie where we're talking about bombing an Iranian enrichment facility is like so bizarre to me. And it always has been bizarre. I've always felt this way about this kind of movies. There's no Iranian flag, obviously, because you don't want to like actually in inflict tension like, with this movie. You can't see any of their faces. Like it's all this very dehumanizing, like depersonalized perception of othering this country that like obviously is going through a ton of turmoil right now that I was deeply uncomfortable with. The the American exceptionalism of it all, I just have no sense of humor about, I guess, because I can't uh, deal with it. So maybe James Cameron had the right idea. Instead of having this unidentified, ominous, but still anonymous enemy, just create a completely different planet. Call it Pandora and make them blue or green or whatever. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. I was like, what is the actual solution to this? You know, all those 80s movies that are like the USSR is trying to bomb us and stuff like that. I, I yeah. just don't think it's productive. And I was like, just make a country up. Like, no one cares that Genovia isn't real. Like, who cares? <laughs> you know what I mean? And Hathaway is the enemy. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> Genovia is trying to get nuclear weapons. <laughs> that would be funny. Um, I, I agree with you. And I also just thought it was very schmaltzy, like, even if we don't talk about the politics at all, just the interrelationships were very schmaltzy and it's like, you know, screenwriting 101, like, you know, my dad died and I'm still, you know, in my feelings about him and I killed my friend and I'm in my feelings about that. And, you know, that's why we can't talk to each other. And now we are going to talk to each other by killing these nameless, faithless people or whatever. Like a lot of people I respect and admire love this movie and talk about it in real terms and I'm just like so but where are you getting this like nothing in this movie felt that real to me and I guess the spectacle is there if you're like into you know big planes and sound and things like that but again it left me a little bit cold but I think the reason it's nominated it's because the narrative that they managed to 
come with and that everybody believes them from people in the industry like Steven Spielberg, who said this, the same words at the Oscar luncheon. There is a clip of him going, saying to Tom Cruise that you saved cinema and you saved theatrical. So that's the narrative. That's the story they're telling. And people believe it from friends of mine who are just, you know, um, don't know that much about movies and are not no cursory stuff about the industry to Steven Spielberg. Everybody believes Tom Cruise and Top Gun Maverick saved movies and saved theatrical, and that's why it's a Best Picture nominee. So um, if you disagree and love Top Gun Maverick, tell us why you love Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> yeah, I would love to know because I don't know. Again, I think it's just not for me, but... Um, so let's move on to another movie, which is the movie that people thought that maybe will save cinema, but actually didn't save cinema. And nobody, um, not nobody, but very few people went to see it, which is not just this movie, but a lot of movies this year, the so-called art house movies, didn't really uh, blow the box office. Um, I have this movie pretty high um, at number three. But easy, you don't, and that is Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Oh gosh, yeah. Um, again, I I'm really digging myself into a hole. It seems <laughs> with this first podcast episode because I'm just cranking out unpopular opinions. But I did not enjoy The Fablemans. I actually should clarify. I think it was fine. I think it's very mid Steven Spielberg, you know, which is better than most filmmakers. But I also um, didn't find it really extraordinary in, in any way. I think I kind of checked out after the first two minutes and it was really hard for me to get me back um, into the story. I think the strongest part of it was obviously like the divorce narrative and how he kind of uses cinema and his filmmaking to kind of expose the truths in real life. I, there were some really, really strong elements around that, but I mostly found it kind of boring mm. which isn't something i typically think of with steven spielberg um yeah but so i was kind of surprised that the performance that everybody kept talking about was michelle williams and that the narrative that people were talking about was about mothers and sons which is definitely present in the movie but my takeaway was mothers um, was fathers and sons and not mothers and sons and that sort of relationship where, um, you know, the father is very taciturn and in turn makes their son kind of molds them into their way, into their, um, into being like them. And then that sort of um, destroys the communication between, between them in a way and they're unable to do it. And the movie actually gets a catharsis in that relationship. And to me, the Paul Dano performance is, which was not nominated for an Oscar, was the performance that really made it all cohere to me, especially that last, because it ends with him. It ends with the father and son. Um, it ends with that relationship um, um, coming together, them coming to an understanding and understanding the divorce and, you know, the estrangement that, you know, in Steven Spielberg, if you listen to him, um, he talked to Mr. Terry Gross on NPR Fresh Air, and he talked about that he was estranged from his father for many years after the divorce, which is not in the movie, but it's sort of like in the movie, I think, you know, I heard that after I've watched the movie, so it's not that that, that interview did not actually cloud my judgment. But when I heard that interview, it just 
made more sense to me why I was sort of so moved by that relationship in the film. And this is why, you know, I rank this film very high. Um, I also finally understood Steven Spielberg's obsession with West Side Story um, because of those scenes in the high school. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was like, Tony Kushner, you've already done this. I think it's interesting, though, that you bring up the Terry Gross interview because I similarly had an experience with this film where everything that he was explaining about it and the way that he talks about his parents outside of this film is much more captivating to me than this actual film was. The documentary about him, different interviews he's done during this whole tour, uh, I just feel like he expresses his feelings about his parents in a way that's so interesting and so deeply thought out. And obviously you can see that because he's put his feelings about his divorce about their divorce in like every single one of his movies in other ways and like subtle ways and in that way i feel like i just am getting exactly what he's trying to say in the fableman in other more fulfilling ways for me so it's i think an underwhelming delivery of that thesis yeah i i hear that and he has in his press tour has been sort of more forthcoming than he's ever been, um, I think. And I really enjoyed all those interviews. Um, another thing that I, I personally didn't notice it, but a lot of very smart critics that I respect have talked about how this movie is the inverse of the magic of movies because it shows how you can use movies to manipulate the truth and all of that, which I think is something that maybe the the cursory reading of this film doesn't allow for that. But if you look at it, it really he really does show you that, especially in those from the very beginning when he's a child playing with um, trying to recreate the greatest. What is the movie called? The greatest something of all. Great train robbery, maybe. Yeah. Is it that one or is it, it might be a different movie? But I just don't remember the train. I do. Remember. Yeah. From that to like sort of the movie where he makes that jock at his school who he had run-ins and he doesn't like makes him the hero. Um, so he is showing that, you know, how the camera and movie making can manipulate the truth and not just manipulate the truth, but completely invert it uh, and make it just a bunch of lies. Um, and so the movie doesn't actually tell you, oh, the movies are magical, but it tells you, well, movies are kind of shit, but maybe we still love them for how they make us feel. I think it would do me a lot of favors to see it again because the way that that movie begins, I don't know that I was in the mood to like receive it because, you know, it really starts out on the corniest of notes where it is telling you like movies are magic. They're dreams that keep with you forever. And then it's like a wide eyed child with the screen blaring into his eyes, which is exactly the kind of movie I hate. As a, I don't know what it is like as a person who loves movies I like hate being told about how they're <laughs> the best things on in the planet yeah which is I don't know some very strange irony I should probably unpack but um yeah I think that just put me in a place where I was like am I gonna eye roll this whole movie he was and setting so, you up easy <laughs> I know he was setting me up which is kind of <laughs> I guess also the point of the the magic of the movies or not thesis but um yeah, so I I think I should see it again, but it didn't it didn't get me the first time, it didn't grab me. Yeah, and this movie like for like I think it's nominated because again, it's a narrative thing, like I think its narrative is very different from from Top Gun, but it's also I think nominated because 
once it was announced that Steven Spielberg is making a personal movie about himself and his parents, it, everybody was like, oh, this is going to be the Oscars movie. Um, and he's going to win again. He has two Best Director Oscars. This is his third. You know, everybody, you know, started that conversation two years ago or whenever it is the movie was announced, maybe three years ago now. Um, and just that narrative sort of never faltered. The movie went and won. You know, they manipulated it so that it goes to only TIFF and somehow win the audience award, which you can, you know, I've never been to TIFF, so I don't know. But listening to people who go there, it's sort of by booking how many screenings and in what theaters to put it, you can sort of not exactly manipulate the result, but just say, make the best um, circumstances for that result to happen. Um, like if you book it in the biggest theater and if you give it, I don't know, five screenings in two days, then that eventually will happen. Um, and so that happened. And um, and even though once it was released, not a lot of people talked about it. Just because of that buzz, it maintained its spot. There was always a spot for the movie for him. And as it turned out, for Michelle Williams and John Williams and other people to be nominated. Yeah. I mean, I think if we kind of want to piggyback off of our last conversation about Top Gun, what's interesting is that somehow the king of blockbusters is now being championed as this art house cinema guy. And not that he isn't. I'm not, I'm not, you know, applying labels to him. But I think the fact that his film, one of the most accessible filmmakers of all time, is kind of being thought of as this thing that it's like, oh, thank God this movie theater is actually getting the fablemans like that's where cinema is at right now you know what i mean yeah that people think it might be a rare or like a distinct privilege that your local amc might get the the fablemans and i think like kind of putting your eggs in the spielberg basket so to speak is kind of like trying to retain this kind of old hollywood that might not exist in five years time yeah mm. And not in a like not in a sad way because he obviously like deserves it given his career, but it's sort of like it's strange to think of him in these terms. I think. Also, like I, I think the other thing that I thought about about this movie is that he comes at the tail end when a lot of other filmmakers have told us this story about their childhood, especially in the last few years. Like Cuaron did it, um, Pedro Almodovar did it. Um, you know, uh, even this year, James Gray did it right before Spielberg. So it's a thing that all of these auteurs do once they, you know, and this is not even new. Like we've had Amacord in the 60s. It's the same thing. It's been happening since the dawn of cinema, basically. That, you know, you, you reach a certain point in your career. If you're an auteur, you're going to tell us about your childhood. Um, but he he's not leading. Uh, usually he leads things I think Spielberg does but in this case he wasn't leading this he's at the tail end of it uh, he's basically telling us this story after we've seen other versions of it very recently and I would say some of them are better than his yeah I wonder like how much how distinct of the Fablemans do you think it is like of a Spielberg movie like do you think of it as a prototypical Spielberg movie, or do you think there is no such thing as a prototypical Spielberg movie? What do you, how do you see it within his filmography? Um, you know, the thing with Steven Spielberg is that I don't think of him that much because, you know, when you're that successful, you're just, 
you know, some people would like to examine you even more, but I'm, I always gravitate towards people who maybe not everybody knows and likes. So I don't actually think about him or his movies that much, but I didn't think this film was different than any of his other films. I think it had that sort of like, um, I don't, I don't want to call it easy emotionality, but I'm thinking of a way like it's recognizable. Like there is no, uh, there is no mystery to a Spielberg movie. There is no yeah. mystery to, to how you're supposed to feel watching a Spielberg movie. Um, it's always laid out to you. It's very well done. It's very good. It's artful. It's, it's really good. All of those are things, but there, it's, there is no ambiguity. You know exactly where you are at all times with his movies. And I think from that perspective, it was not different than any of his other movies. Uh-huh. That makes sense. I think maybe that's where I struggle with it a little bit because I maybe like wanted there to be more ambiguity, especially with his relationship to the parents, because I think there's always ambiguity with your relationship to your parents. Yeah. Especially given his childhood and what happened. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I definitely want to see that one again because I feel like I might think of it differently a second time. Yeah. And the thing is, I don't always love his movies. I always admire them more than I love them, but I kind of love this one. And, you know, just to close the conversation on it, I thank Paul Dano for that, um, for making me love this film. And Paul Dano, when are you going to get an Oscar nomination? Judge Hirsch, whatever. You should have gotten that spot. <laughs> Yeah, he deserves one at some point. Or he should have already had one, I think, a couple times over. So the first movie nominated for Best Picture that we're going to talk about is Ruben Ostlund's Can winning, Palm d'Or winning uh, movie, Triangle of Sadness. He won two Palm d'Ors. I can't believe that in like four years. Yeah, like that. that's wild. So this is, besides our top movie of the year, I think this is the movie that we both put at exactly the middle, at number five. So it's middle of the road, but it's pretty good. Like the thing with Triangle of Sadness, like I thought the satire was very obvious. Like it was never surprising where it was going, but I just felt that his points were maybe obvious, but he delivered them well. Like it was well done and well executed and funny, especially the first story. I thought the first story, the models was the best part of the film and it was very funny yeah i was kind of uh, confused in the first act because i had been sold that this was you know a story about class and whatever and i sort of got what it was doing with the fashion industry and thought it was very clever and funny but i was like how is this where is this going you know it took me a, a while to understand what i was watching but mm. Once it sort of got into the middle of the second act, I was like, okay, all right, I see, I see what you're doing here. This is this is great. I imagine that the the seasickness scene might have turned some people off, <laughs> but who knows? Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I just thought it was very funny that everybody was just vomiting all over the place. <laughs> just I, atrocious. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel bad for anyone it. who who. <laughs> Imagine seeing that at like Nighthawk or like Alamo and you're in the middle of like eating a giant meal and oh, then this yeah. scene comes on <laughs> and you're just like, oh, all right. Yeah. Cool. I'm still laughing about it. I thought it was very good. I really loved the first scene with the two actors um, playing the model. I thought that was very good. I think the this third part, which is the one that sort of got the awards attention because Dolly DeLeon 
was, you know, justifiably had some buzz and got a Golden Globe nomination, won supporting actress. Snubbed. Yeah, and then snubbed. Um, I think she deserved the, the accolades, but I also saw that part was maybe the most obvious part of the satire. Of course, he's going to make that person a woman because if you make it a man, then what's the point? Um, but also, like, just because that choice was obvious doesn't mean that he didn't do it well or that she didn't nail the performance um, and made, you know, the, the movie lands in the end well because her performance is strong at the end. Um, even though I think that part sort of like goes on too long, more than it should go, but she still is magnetic and nails the performance and sort of like makes the movie sort of like it, sh it should have been maybe not that long, but you still, I was never not engaged and that's thanks to her in yeah. that last part yeah the bit where she um, tosses them little extra pieces of food and she's like who's the captain who's in charge right now yes i was dying it's so funny yeah so well done yeah um and i know we're going to talk about the acting nominees in another um episode but so you know you know listen to us next week uh but um since she snubbed, I think we can talk about Dolly De Leon. And I think what I want to say about her, like, this is the kind of nomination and story that the Oscars were made for. Somebody like her who's been working for a very long time in the Philippines gets this big international film that goes to Cannes, Wilms of Palm d'Or. She comes here. Critics give her awards. The Golden Globes, who I don't know what they are right now, nominate her. And the Oscars, I'm just like, you got such an amazing story here. This is the person you need to nominate. Um, and as usual, sometimes they just don't care about those great stories that would make their show more interesting. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it really does feel like one of those years where your connections within the industry are going to make a big impact um, <laughs> or like the narrative of your story. Because, yeah. like, not every acting nominee is the most in-touch person in the industry this year. Yeah. But there are really compelling narratives. And, like, I don't think there's going to be any way that Eddie would beat Angela Bassett here. No. and well, I haven't seen so. Black Panther, but, like, it has to happen. It's shocking that it hasn't happened yet. It could be any movie. <laughs> like, she yeah. would win this year. She's winning for being Angela Bassett for her career, for the stuff she has given yeah. her. And that's fine. Um, I haven't seen Wakanda forever either. I have seen just that scene that everybody put on Twitter, and apparently that's her big scene. So where she's like, she's the queen. I haven't even seen that, <laughs> but I would guess that it's great. Yeah, substantial Bassett. <laughs> yes. Anything else you want to say about Triangle of Sadness? Uh, not not particularly. I mean, I think there seems what. I, might be interesting is that there seems to be this trend of income inequality movies there's like one every year or so now where the film industry seems to be acknowledging that they like movies about income inequality which is fascinating coming from this group of individuals some are more effective than others i'm not sure this was the most effective of the bunch that we've seen in this vein like Obviously, I think Parasite kind of wins that yeah. fight. Did you see the menu? I did see the menu, yeah. I think this is better than the menu, but yes. I enjoyed the menu. Yeah, I agree 100%. It's definitely better than the menu, for sure. Yeah. 
But yeah, it's interesting that these kind of keep coming out and they're all kind of equally toothless, I think. They're they're all willing to kind of satirize the rich, but they're all they all kind of don't want to advocate for anything specific. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. like rich people suck. And that's yeah. it. Yeah. I but I think what's interesting about this one is like what is kind of acknowledging that maybe the others don't is that truism of absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like it doesn't matter who's in charge. Like once you give power to somebody, it's going to be abused. Which I think is interesting. It's almost like kind of refuting its own assertion in a way. I think what it adds to the discourse is which is why I like the first story the most is that milieu of, you know, supermodels. I've never sort of seen it explored in a satire. I certainly never heard of a, what a triangle of sadness is before this movie, and now I know it. And so I think that's where it has the most bite. Um, and it keeps losing the bite as it goes along. But it still, like, was good and enjoyable, and I liked it, and I had a good time. You know, well, the next film that maybe you had a better time with than I did as I continued digging myself into a hole um, of unpopular opinions, is Elvis. Tell me about Elvis. What did you think? So I've always loved Baz Luhrmann. I just love Baz Luhrmann. Somehow Baz speaks to me. Also, I would say one thing, and I am sorry to Baz, but I'm always surprised every time I see a Baz Luhrmann movie that he's straight. Because his movies are so... I Same thing. Yeah. It's like him and Douglas Sirk. I simply refuse to believe. Yes. So from that perspective, like, I think it's aesthetic. It's too much muchness. Um, It just plays to all the things that I like. Um, This is a movie that stops its story of Elvis to tell us for two very entertaining, enjoyable scenes, what an inappropriate relationship he had with his mother. And we have to love it. I I love it just for that. Um, It's a movie, and I also just think Austin Butler is pretty amazing. It's a movie that does the thing where the actor playing the very famous person morphs into the actual famous person at the end of it so that you see actual footage of Elvis, which is something that would completely annoy me in any other movie but somehow from Baz I loved it and I enjoyed it and I thought it made the performance of Butler even more resonant to me um it's just for all these reasons I and I I've heard the criticisms about it you know I think Baz is very clumsy talking about um cultural appropriation and how Elvis appropriated black people's music I hear that Absolutely, this movie is very clumsy in the way that it portrayed that. But Elvis is from these 10. It's the movie that, you know, I keep playing parts of it. Like, thank you, HBO Max. You could just click on and Elvis is there. <laughs> I keep watching yeah. some of the performances a couple few times. I've watched them. I think it's just, I just had a good time with it. Um, what was um, your problem with it? I guess I should say that I mostly liked like all of these movies. So I did rank it eighth, but I didn't hate it. The criticisms I have of it are criticisms that I have of nearly every biopic that comes out, mm-hmm. um, which is that it kind of was clumsy about obviously, you know, cultural appropriation, but about like several things with 
Elvis's life and kind of his cultural impact. And that mostly owes to the fact that it's kind of trying to encapsulate this larger than life figure in, in a two and a half hour story, which is, I think, kind of an imp- impossible feat. Mm-hmm. I don't think it really added anything new to our our understanding of Elvis. I think the way it was kind of framed with Tom Parker as the narrator is a little distracting because I think we lose a, a lot of Elvis's interiority. Like a lot of the things that it was kind of trying to say about Elvis were never really backed up by like Elvis himself, like as a character, as a person. So you know, he deeply wants to be very sexual on stage and he wants to be this kind of performer, but he also is never portrayed as a, he's like an asexual character off the stage. Like he, he has his wife and there's like a hint that he cheats on her once, but that's it. It's like, why do you care? Like, why do you, you know, it just, there are yeah. all these kinds of like strange, like things that the script just kind of glosses over that I found inconsistent. I actually, I thought that the Baz Luhrmann-ness of it would kind of annoy me, but it didn't because I think it kind of works for that kind of pop culture figure, kind of, especially in the Vegas days. Yeah. Um, He's always so opulent. Like his, like if he has an aesthetic, it's opulence. And opulence sort of, you know, yeah. It then suits Elvis. <laughs> totally. I do think it was kind of fighting against Austin Butler's performance sometimes. Um, because I do think when he was allowed to kind of give a more understated, this is Elvis like speaking from his soul kind of moment, that's where he was doing a lot of his best work, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't get very many of those. And most of that is like because it's being substituted for narration. Or it's being substituted with like Baz Luhrmann opulence. I think it was a fine performance, but I think it could have been even better if it were a different context, if it had a different context. Yeah. If that makes yeah. Sense. I was just very charmed by him. And I thought he did. Like he just, he did the, you, when you play somebody like Elvis, just the other people who played Catherine Hepburn or Tammy Faye Baker or, you know, won Oscars and got nominated or Freddie Mercury, you have to, which is why I think he's going to win. You have to do it. Like you have to do the bit. You can't not do it. Like you can't play Catherine Hepburn and not do the Catherine Hepburn voice. And you can't play Elvis and not do the Elvis mannerisms. And so he does that. (laughs) Yeah, he does. I was also kind of surprised though. I was like, if you're going to do it, go all the way, gain the weight, do a Renee Zellweger. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Like, tell us all about how you ate 40 donuts a day to play Elvis in his last years. <laughs> um, don't just, like, change your voice forever. Go. Yeah. Go do it. They keep Elvis looking almost exactly the same from when he's a teenager at Sun Records to when he's about to die. He looks almost exactly the same minus his wardrobe until they put him in some prosthetics in the last literal 30 seconds of the movie. Um, which to me, I was like, this isn't, you don't really see that deterioration that I think they're trying to emphasize quite a bit toward the end. Um, yeah, well, movies are a fantasy, so it's true. It's true. And I think this point and also the other point you mentioned earlier about sort of his marriage, I think this is the fact when you, when you are working with the family to make a movie with their approval, um, like, I don't even think like 
um, the family sort of told him not to do this, but he probably felt a little sheepish about, you know, talking to Priscilla every day and then showing her a script where he, where Elvis is just, you know, fucking left and right. So, you know, excuse my French. So, so that in the end, yeah, you, you win things, you win the rights to all the songs and the life story and all the things that you really need and can make a movie with, but then you have to be a little bit polite. Right. And I think, I think it, it kind of lost something without that honesty, which I actually made me really look forward to the Sophia Coppola <laughs> version of Priscilla's life that's coming out yeah. possibly, I don't know, next year. Yeah, I think they already shot it. I would, yeah, so I would be, I'm interested to see kind of a different view of Elvis, especially anything that doesn't include that Tom Hanks performance. I could literally not believe what I was watching. Yeah. Um, I have never seen him worse. I know. I don't know what, like every choice he made was just the wrong choice. Um, yeah. And not just, and not all of them were not his choices, obviously, like the makeup and the prosthetics and the look and the narration, those are not Tom Hanks' choices, um, yeah. but he still suffered for them. Um, and we did too. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's yeah. very surprising because he's usually so reliable and likable and he's none of these things in this. And maybe that's what attracted him to the role to stretch himself. But that's- yeah, I was thinking about that too. I was like, is this where Tom Hanks is trying to branch out a little bit? That's unfortunate if that's what this is, because <laughs> I think he can do it. Yes, absolutely. It is weird. Um, is there a segue or transition from Elvis to the First World War? Or we could just make it. <laughs> uh, you know who else was a soldier just like Elvis? Paul in All Quiet in the Western Front. <laughs> uh, so this was the one movie that I haven't watched. Um, just And I only watched it last night. Um, so my feelings for it are very new. I have it very low. Very wrong. Oh, I watched Elvis last night. So yeah, mine are also very raw. Yeah. I get it, is what I'm saying. Yes, yes. So you have it um, a little higher than I do. I think it's in your, oh, it's your number three. Wow. Mm-hmm. You have it very high. So I'll give you the floor, Izzy. Why do you like Paul Quiet? I assume you like it. I do. Um, But I think this is just the type of film that I like. <laughs> so, that was me with Elvis. Elvis is yeah. the, the type of film I like. Yeah. I know. And it, it, I, it's kind of embarrassing because I'm like, oh, this is like this this straight white dad in me is being like, yeah, dude, this like World War One movie, all about it. But um, no, it's true. Like, I am a big sucker for anything about Germany from like 1900 to 19... 19- 30 before it gets too scary <laughs> um i i am just like obsessed with that those years in in history like i read books about it all the time i had just finished reading a book by an austrian writer which was about this time period like right before i saw this so i was like very much immersed in that history and thinking about it and the psychology of people who are going through this exact experience because he talks about it in this book it's called the world of yesterday by stefan zweig if anyone is interested in reading it but yeah so like all of the things that are kind of addressed in this film were already things that were in my brain things that i was thinking about how people get riled up to go to war patriotism how powerless people feel in situations like this 
And this movie kind of spoke to all of those things and was sort of um, the exclamation point to a lot of those trails of thought for me. I also, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a big pol- politics nerd. Uh, my major, this is probably also what, what affected my opinions of Top Gun. But my major in college was international relations. I like wrote my big final paper senior year about drones, which <laughs> made Top Gun very funny. Um, so like all this stuff is kind of stuff that I'm very interested in. Like I'm interested in, wow, it sounds really bad at saying that, but I'm interested in war. I'm interested in how they start. I'm interested in politics and all that. So yeah, I think it just kind of speaks to a lot of the personal things that I was thinking about and, uh, things that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's also just very beautifully shot and acted. I think, um, I forget what his name, Albert Schecht. Yes. Is I forget the, what his name is. The guy who plays Cot is so good. He's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, He's BAFTA yeah. nominated, but not Oscar nominated. I know. And I wish he would have gotten the push because he's fantastic. But yeah. Um, yeah. So I feel like my reaction to it is very, very specific to me. And I totally understand why other people would be like, I've seen this kind of movie a hundred times before. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really offer anything new, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I get all of that very much. So I love All Quiet on the Western from the book. So the book um, we read in um, in school, maybe middle school. And it, we read it in English class, but it was an English translation of this book written in German. So I don't know why it was taught in English class. You know, you um, I don't know what my teachers back in cartoon were thinking. But anyway, we did read it. Um, and I remember at the time, because I was in an all-boys school and there was an all-girls school um, just across the street. And, you know, and so we had like a, a common courtyard between the two schools. And so we mixed and mingled there and all the girls were reading Pride and Prejudice. And I was so jealous that they <laughs> were reading Pride and Prejudice. I'm like, I want to read. Of course, I never told anyone because, you know, like, yeah. I was deeply closeted. Um, but <laughs> I was very jealous and I wanted to read Pride and Prejudice. Um, and so anyway, um, to make a long story short, looking back to it, I remember just loving the language so much and being so moved by it. And even though, you know, I wanted to read Pride and Prejudice, I still loved it. And I would, you know, read it and weep because the movie, the the language was so moving. Um, and then the stories and these characters in the book are so wonderful. And I just didn't feel any of that in the movie. Um, and I think um, my friend who's very smart, Chris File, who saw the movie before I saw it and we were talking about it over text like you do. And he told me it's just like, a, it's just looks like a video game. Um, and I felt that, like, I know he told me this before I saw the movie. So maybe I was influenced, but I still felt that, especially, you know, when just to posing that was how I felt reading the book. Um, yeah. I just didn't feel any of the feelings I had and you know I was an impressionable 14 year old at the time so maybe that's why I didn't feel as well yeah well look at this I'm reading it literally right now yeah and that's funny because I've never read Pride and Prejudice so maybe we should have we should have switched classes like in your school and cartoon but um, yeah but I see what you mean I think it's it's interesting reading the book now there's there's an anger to the narrator that I don't think comes across in the film quite as much. He's he's just kind of numbed, I think, 
in the movie mm-hmm. in a way that he isn't in the book. He's very bitter. They took obviously a lot of liberties with the screenplay mm-hmm. here, changing it from the book. So maybe that was kind of a consequence of that. But yeah, I totally see what you mean. I do think that's an interesting point about the um, the video game aspectness of it, because I remember that criticism being levied quite frequently to, toward um, 1917. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that's going to be a problem with almost every war movie going forward because that is such a common motif of video games now. It's like a first-person war game. Yeah. Like, is it is it even possible to make a, a war movie now that doesn't look like a video game? Probably not. And people, you know, who grew up on these video games might not enjoy those movies. Um, so, so, yeah, you're right. It is sort of a conundrum. But I just, you know, going back to, you know, kind of the things that, you know, to me, movies are about how they make me feel. And the reason that I'm not high on this film is that I it didn't make me feel much. Um, despite the fact that it is a movie, it's a harrowing story. And it's a movie about, you know, a, a, just the disastrous war that, you know, millions and millions of people died in, like when you read about the First World War. And the book captures that. Like, you read the book and you just know that, you get that devastating feeling of like, oh, this was a catastrophe from every um, angle. Um, and I just didn't feel that was the film at all. I, I'm going back to revisit the, maybe for a video, I don't know, for the, the 1930 version. Um, I'm interested to see how those two kind of play off of each other. One of the things that I'd like to think about is how audiences who likely would have lived through that conflict mm-hmm. would have responded to that film versus now where i think it's kind of that type of warfare is well i i guess i would say abstract but i don't think it's that different from what's happening in ukraine right now um yeah or even like the the just the the earthquake that just happened in turkey and syria like yeah that's sort of that catastrophe where the loss of life is so enormous yeah Um, and just um, pointless yeah exactly yeah but, I mean, why do you think this movie got nominated? Because I think the story here, if we're talking about narratives and about the Oscars, um, just beyond the movie itself, like, I think people have talked, like, Netflix has been getting at least one or two movies nominated for Best Picture for the last few years, and they, you know, came close to winning a few times, and they never quite managed it. And this year, it seemed like everybody was like, but what is the Netflix movie? What is the Netflix spot? When, you know, they had White Noise and they had Bardo and all these auteur movies and this was the one. Um, Is it just... I was surprised. Yeah, I was surprised because I had watched it before the nominations came out and I enjoyed it, obviously, but I hadn't seen anyone talking about it at all. And so when it actually showed up, especially with the number of nominations it received, I was like, where did this come from? So I don't know. I mean, there must be some sort of parties that Netflix has been throwing or something (laughs) to get this thing. In people's yeah. brains, I'm not sure. I mean, there or people just love war movies. It is a, like, yeah, it's a, it's a very Oscar movie. I mean, like the first, I think Best Picture was a World War One movie. Yeah, yes. Like this is absolutely the type of movie that gets nominated every year. Yeah, I mean, there's when there is a well-made war movie, it usually gets the nominations. Like if you think of. Saving Private Ryan, if we're talking about Spielberg to 1917 to this one, 
they not only get nominated, but they sort of like sweep the technical categories and get all the nominations there. And most of them come very close to winning. And it's usually thought of as um, a technical achievement. Like they're always yeah. nominated for things like cinematography and production designer and directing. Um, I think the men in the academy just think of this. This is it. This is what real filmmaking is. <laughs> yeah, it's serious. Yeah, <laughs> I totally see that. Um, I think I would also, though, be surprised if this came away with nothing. Yeah, I think it's probably going to win cinematography, like at least. So our next film is a movie based on a book. Good segue, Murtado. Um, Also based on a book like All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, and... Where there were no women talking. And here we have only, well, almost only women talking. Yes. Ben Wishaw, what are you doing, girl? Um, but anyway, we're talking about Sarah Polly's Women Talking. Um, and this is a movie that... Um, I read the book, or I tried to read the book. I never finished it. I read the book to prepare to see the movie, but then I didn't like the book. So I was like, I'll just see the movie. And then it turns out I didn't even like the movie, but it's called Women Talking. So I tried to shut up about it. And I haven't said anything publicly about Women Talking except on Letterboxd. Um, and so, um, but yes, people, if you were dying to know what I thought of Women Talking, I don't like it. I'm sorry. Um, but before... We talk about why I don't like it or why it didn't work for me. Um, what did you think of Women Talking, Izzy? Uh, I thought it was pretty good, but like bottom of the table good in, in this top 10. I could see why people would not like it. I think it's very much philosophy classroom mm, yes. discourse, which yeah. I think can be grading depending on your level of tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll I'll tell you what I, my favorite thing about it, which is that because this was an isolated community where they were physically incapable of accessing the internet, these mm -hmm. conversations could not be discussed in terms that seemed like they were written for the internet. Like, I think the conclusions they come to and that kind of stuff are pretty in line with common, normal people feminism. Mm -hmm. But... It's not like they were using buzzwords or like common phrases to kind of to convey what their philosophies were. It was all taking things back to what they were familiar with, which is like the Bible and theology and all these kinds of things. So it was very much like taking it back to not, you know, what's popular to say, but like what is what can we actually look at as being like right and wrong? Like what are the good things to do, especially in a situation where like there could be physical harm? perpetrated against you depending on what you pick and i think laying out that logic in a way that didn't feel too buzzwordy was mm. a relief to experience mm -hmm. so that's what i enjoyed about it mostly yeah i think i agree with your first one that you mentioned is that it was a very academic exercise to me um and it just felt completely untethered to reality uh, especially in a story that is about, you know, these visceral things, um, you know, systematic abuse and all of these things that, you know, are very real. Um, and so to have it be just this academic um, exercise to me, just these women sitting around talking in abstract um, and not actually talking about anything they've experienced, to me, just alienated me. Um, and I didn't feel which is why I sort of didn't like the film. 
I also just think the performances were very, and you know, as someone who loves watching actors, um, and sometimes an actor like with the Fablemans can totally make the movie for me, um, even with one scene. Like I just saw all the performances were completely misjudged. Um, some people were doing absolutely nothing. Hi, Rooney Mara, what happened? Do you have you forgotten how? It's to her act? specialty, though. It's her specialty. <laughs> um, and some <laughs> people were doing way too much. Um, like hello, Ben Wishaw, Claire Foy, and yeah. Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley, but Ben Wishaw especially. Can you relax for a second? Do your face muscles have to move all the fucking time? The camera's on you. Yeah. Um, so I was a little frustrated with that character in general because it was very, it was very much just like a not all men character. Um, sacrificial lamb there at the end. Yeah, I totally, I see what you mean. Totally. Yeah. So anyway, um, this is all I'm going to say about women. I talk too much as a man talking about women talking. Um, (laughs) 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 but anyway, I love Sarah Pauli. I still love her. Um, I'm waiting for the next one because this didn't do it for me. Yeah. More away from her. Yeah. is what I want from her. <laughs> Absolutely. Or what's the documentary called Stories We Tell? That was pretty fantastic. Or even the Michelle Williams movie. The first time Michelle Williams fell in love was Seth Rogen. What was it called? Take This Woman. <laughs> <laughs> Were you surprised at all that none of the cast of Women Talking got nominations anywhere, not just at the Oscars? It seemed like they canceled each other out or something. Uh <laughs> A little bit with BAFTAs, because I feel like Jesse Buckley and Claire Foy seem to be very BAFTA-ready actors. Yeah. But otherwise, no, I don't think... I didn't hear enough that would have made me suspect that they would get nominated elsewhere. Yeah, so it's a movie that didn't get any acting nominations, which is very surprising for a film that's really mostly carried by the actors and the screenplay. But a movie that very potentially maxed out on its acting nominations. There's two of those, and we can discuss them one after the other. The first is Everything Everywhere All at Once, which basically maxed out on all its nominations. It got nominations for score, song, and costumes, which nobody was expecting, and then it got four of its actors nominated, which I think is a lot. (laughs) But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Uh, so this is the phenomenon of the year. This is the movie that everybody expects is going to win Best Picture. It led the nominations. It started this movie. It's a little movie that could. It's a uh, small movie is a big heart, according to Edgar Riceboro. <laughs> it's the other one. Um, you know, it started at South by Southwest, and then it became a box office hit. And in one of those box office hits that happened during the pandemic and that took months to get to $100 million. But I think the love for it, especially online its fans are very vocal they talk about how they love it oh do you love it izzy i do i saw it twice in theaters um once i went in not knowing at all what it was even about uh and leaving very pleasantly surprised and the second time i forced a friend of mine to go with me because i knew she would love it and she did so i i did enjoy it i don't think it's like a flawless film you know yeah. what I mean? But, yeah. Or that it's necessarily like thematically coherent. But I think my suspicion anyway is that I it resonated with me in a way that it resonates with a lot of people, which is 
it is the first film I've seen in a long time that is kind of putting its hands up and being like, yeah, nothing matters. And it's really hard to like live in a world that just seems like it's constantly in chaos and Mm. we have to do our best. And it just, it sort of spoke to kind of this general anxiety that I feel most people have right now for obvious reasons. I mean, there's a lot going on. Um, I think it's kind of crazy not to feel like you're in the middle of constant chaos these days. So yeah, um, I I just felt like it really resonated with me on a personal level in that way. And then it just felt very like creative. Obviously, the multiverse is something that's literally everywhere now. So it's not a new concept, but I thought it was executed in a way that felt very personal and individual. It, it doesn't feel like a Marvel film at all to me mm. or like DC or anything like that. So interesting. Um, clearly you disagree (laughs) yeah i did enjoy it i'm not quite as swept away and i think a lot of people are sort of turning on it because there is such a rabid fan base and that kind Mm. of i think destroys a lot of people's perception of it uh but i've generally stayed out of that discourse so i think it's kind of allowed me to preserve my affection for it but i'm generally very positive on it It wasn't my number one of the year but i ranked it i think fourth yeah pretty highly yeah, I think I ranked it sevens or something like that. But I think what you were just saying about the rapid fan base is really something to, you know, uh, what I did before talking to you is that I was like, you know, when a movie becomes this successful, especially with awards, because with award movies, all of them, you have to basically talk about them for months on end and think about them for months on end. And this movie came out almost a year ago now, like it came out in April or May, something like that. Yeah, And it does have this huge following and people love it so much. Um, and then it has this huge success with awards and it, you kind of, tur- you know, I turned on it um, because I didn't, yeah. I liked it, but I didn't love it. And I never thought that it's an awards movie. Um, that's I, on me, not on the movie. So before talking to you, I went back to like when I saw it first and wrote and read what I wrote. I didn't review it, but I just, you know, wrote, read what I wrote on Letterboxd and just mine. I always take notes in movies because you never know if somebody's going to assign you a movie to review or to write something about. So I just went and, and read my notes so that I'm like, you know, let all this noise go away. Let me see what my original feelings about this movie were. And I liked it. I, you know, back at my notes, I liked it. I thought it was um inventive and it was interesting um i thought it was too frantic for me that i could never kind of um connect with the characters because it just kept moving from place to place i didn't like all the ridiculous things like that it did but i sort of understand them as a gimmick as a joke um like i appreciate the stones talking to each other i appreciate the the what are they called the the fingers, the Jamie Lee and Michelle Yeoh hands. Yeah, uh, yeah. The hot dog hands. Yeah. The hot dog hands. And so all of this, like, it it works to me as, yes, this is something different. But it's just, you know, I just liked it. I never loved it. So I'm kind of perplexed by how far it went. And, and that's okay. Um, I'd rather be perplexed by something that's sort of like, I think it's the opposite of The Fablemans. Because The Fablemans was yeah. kind of ordained to be an Oscar movie from the casting announcement, from the project, even the project announcement, like like we talked about earlier. And this is completely the opposite. This is a movie that sort of got to where it is by people the, watching The public it. ordained it. Yeah. I yes. mean, and it was totally word of mouth. I don't think when this came out, 
A24 was thinking about it as an awards contender. The directors probably weren't. I don't think, yeah, I don't think that was the plan at all, especially for like an April release. Um, yeah. But yeah, it just kind of became this other beast. And I think that's kind of, that's nice. Like it clearly is saying something to people now. I think it has a point of view and clearly it is resonating with enough people that it got momentum to be where it is now. That's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. Your, your point about being it being Marvel, like I've heard people, like when I reacted to what you were saying, it's not Marvel. I was just, I don't have an opinion on that because I don't actually see that many Marvel movies. So I'm not one to talk about. Like if you told me what distinguishes a Marvel movie, I wouldn't be able to tell you because I've seen the ones that I see. I've seen Black Panther and the one that Kate Blanchett was in. That's it. Um, <laughs> so I'm definitely not an expert, but I've seen people, people I like and respect call it a Marvel audition for the directors. And I don't know what that means. Is it the multiverse thing? Is it the editing? Is it the sort of building of, because the Michelle Yeoh character is, and it's sort of a superhero kind of, um, and so kind of, yeah. So when if you've heard that, why why do you think people keep comparing it to Marvel? Because you did. Yeah, um, I could see that like Marvel audition. That's really funny. But also, I mean, what's funny is like I don't think anyone would have said that about Nomadland. But then, guess who ended up in Marvel anyway? Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, I shit on Marvel all the time, and I feel like I can do that because I've seen almost every single one of them. I'm not coming from a place of criticism where it's just like I'm doing it out of principle. Like I'm doing it out of principle and also I've seen them all and I know why they're bad <laughs> and why they're good. There is some some merit to a lot of them, actually, I think. I think there's a sense of humor in Marvel movies that's very like it's a lot of I mean, the common criticism that's levied out of this like, well, that just happened like as a joke. You know what I mean? People saying just kind of very obvious things or making dumb pop, pop culture references. You know, there's a dragon and then somebody's like, OK, Khaleesi, you know, it's just bad humor. Yeah. Which is that's an actual quote, by the way, from I think an upcoming. I don't know if it's Marvel, it might be DC, but same thing at this point. It's all, it's all the same. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's all James Gunn now. Yeah. I think like this movie does have some of that the ratatouille thing is kind of that you know but i think it's also more risque maybe mm -hmm. i think it wants to be perceived as more adult and more mature than the average Mar marvel movie does mm. um and i think it also is playing with relationships that are more complicated than the average Mar marvel movie is kind of the interplay between the, the parents and also mm -hmm. like the parent and the and the child um mm, yeah is i it's just more complex i think some of the visuals are more daring because i don't think they had the budget to do what marvel does with cv cgi so they had to be a little bit more inventive mm -hmm. but yeah like i can totally see how people would think that it's marvel jason i think it is but it's just kind of does those things in a cleverer way or a way that isn't just trying to preserve a brand mm -hmm. got it yeah yeah i can i can totally understand the criticism yeah. But I don't think it's to me. It didn't distract distract from it because it felt more like a traditional genre film as opposed to like this as part of a universe, a specific yeah. universe. Yeah, and it is. I have to give it that it is very specific. There is in its characters, like there is specificity in how they came up with those characters. That definitely, which is I think why it resonates with people. 
Um, yeah. Um, so the other film that also maxed out on its acting nominations is The Banshees of Inisherin, which we both have. I, I think I have it at four or something like that. And you have it at also up there. Yeah. Um, I think it's second for me. All right. Um, um, are you Irish? No, I, I know you're Irish. not. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not, but I could. Uh, um, I'm not either. But um, I like this movie. The thing about this movie is that um, I really like like parts of it, but I sort of just was not in with the fable of it all. Like the fable, because the fable of it all is about cutting off your fingers. And that's just too violent. And I know it's supposed to be mm -hmm. this abstract idea, but it's just something that's too violent whenever there is. Like in a movie, somebody doing harm to the body, I just, I just checked out. So once he started cutting off his fingers, I checked out. But I admire the acting. I think all the actors are wonderful. Yeah. And I think it deserved those four Oscar nominations. I think Colin Farrell has never been better. Um, Brendan Gleeson is pretty amazing. Um, Barry Keegan, he has that scene with Gary Condon um, where he, you know, the scene that everybody keeps sharing on Twitter and every time they do, I click and watch it again because they're both wonderful in it. And she's so great at, you know, playing the quiet parts and also playing the loud parts when she has to be loud. Um, and so I think the actors take this movie very far. I think the screenplay, the, the you know, apart from the fable part of it, which I didn't connect with, I think it gives them wonderful speeches to deliver. And that's sort of like only somebody who knows how to hold an audience attention on stage, like Martin McDonough is, is a stage, you know, he's a theater writer. Um, he does that and they deliver it well. And, and that's, I think, why it resonates. Yes, I agree with all of that. All of the actors really did an incredible job, in my opinion, on this one. I do kind of love, I really loved Colin Farrell in this because I think we don't get enough of that kind of leading man these days or just kind of this lovable oaf. Mm, um, yeah. Who's like extremely well-intentioned. He's not an anti-hero in any way. I think the kind of... um I think you can understand where he's coming from for most of this film, you know, and I think a lot of us do a lot of us do this in our everyday lives where we want to mend some broken relationship or do something uh, with the best intentions. And we just sort of end up making it worse or um, if things sort of unspool in front of us in a way that we're, we just constantly are trying to fix and it doesn't <laughs> end up working. Um, so I loved that i thought that that dynamic was really interesting um uh i also loved that it let carrie condon's character um make the decision to leave mm. i think so often i mean maybe if this film had been made like 20 years ago she would have been like just suffering and staying on the island you know probably but, um, but the fact that she was allowed to leave and kind of like pursue her own life was really nice to me and it gave the story a good twist because it forced him to kind of reevaluate his life um i think one of the things that i wish i knew more about was the irish civil war i don't know anything about it so i don't know how it kind of serves as like a metaphor 
for maybe what was going on at that time or how yeah. that those um, brief references to what was happening kind of relate. Um, I yeah. think that probably understanding that would have made it a richer experience as a viewer. Uh-huh. Yeah. But um, overall, I mean, yeah, I, I just found it... It was just like a nice adult story, <laughs> which we don't <laughs> get a lot of these days. Yeah. Um. So I was very pleased with it. Yeah. I mean, the Irish question thing, um, which is why I jokingly asked at the beginning if either of us was Irish, is because as with all Oscar-nominated films, there's a takedown. It's in Slate. It's about, I don't know if you read that, it's about how... Oh, no, I haven't how un-Irish it is and this is basically they call Martin McDonough who was I think according to this article I haven't verified it but um, it's on Slate so I could assume that the facts at least the facts are correct um, that he was born in London to Irish parents and never actually lived in Ireland so he he is Irish but basically this writer is saying he's playing up Irish stereotypes like this is a reductive way of that article, which is very long and goes into yeah. a lot of detail. But basically, he's saying he's playing up Irish stereotype from a non-Irish person to a non-Irish audience. Interesting. Um, so what are, what are the stereotypes they, that this person names? Like, the, like the, sort of the emotionality and the depression and the war yeah. and the drinking and the sort of like all these things um, are, you know... According to him, to this person. On the bright story. side, great sweaters. Great yes. sweaters in this film. The, the sweaters are great. Yeah. The Hollywood experience of Ireland is very specific. It's one of those countries that is so small, but has such an outsized presence in American pop culture, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting to me. Being forced to reevaluate what you see as the real Ireland or like authentically Irish um, mm-hmm. would be a good conversation. So I'm going to reveal my top 10 before we talk about the movie that we both have at number one, which I think everybody has guessed by now. But yeah. Why don't you why don't you descend from 10 to 2 and then we can reveal together. Can, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So my top 10 are number 10, Top Gun Maverick. Number nine, All Quiet on the Western Front. Number eight, Women Talking. Number seven, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Number six, Avatar, The Way of Water. Number five, Triangle of Sadness. Number four, The Banshees of Inishirin. Number three, The Fablemans. Number two, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. <laughs> and mine were, well, at number 10, The Gap that I did not see, Avatar, Wave Water. Number nine, Top Gun. Number eight, Elvis. Number seven, Fablemans. Number six, Women Talking. Number five, Triangle of Sadness. Number four, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Number three, All Quiet on the Western Front. Number two, Banshees of Inisherin. And number one, Da-da-dum, Tar. Tar. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a shock that we both have landed here. I know, so shocking. So in my other podcast, Sundays with Skate, um, I did three episodes on Tar. So I've already talked a bunch about Tar. I've reviewed it. I've inhaled all the memes. I've read all the theories, which are all terrible uh, for a wonderful movie. But um, you and I have discussed it, but not in depth. Like, I think we've discussed it yeah. over, over text. But I would love to hear what, what you love about Tar. Uh, well, first of all, Kate Blanchett's performance. So, <laughs> shock again. 
But typically, I mean, we've talked about this before. Like, I think yeah. one of the things that I enjoy most about Kate Blanchett's performances is how kind of theatrical they are. There's always an element of like performativity in everything that she does. Like, I don't think she's the kind of actor who people necessarily are like, she disappeared in the role. Yeah. She does because she's a good actor, but there's always sort of an element that feels a little heightened. Yes. It's not, it's not like a subtle performance yeah. really from her usually um never is yeah yep but this i felt like this is the first time i've really watched her in a film where i forgot that i was watching kate blanchett because i i think in the first 10 minutes or so it kind of feels like that where she is she's literally i mean she is literally performing for an audience like that's yeah. kind of how q a's are you're never really a real person but as she kind of gets back into her everyday life and she goes back to her marriage and her job that heightened like intensity to her performance is kind of bleeds away and it just it becomes very grounded in a way that felt so new and like so interesting for her i also think i loved this screenplay i know a lot of people are kind of just don't get it <laughs> but it's a um, wonderful screenplay i agree but i just i haven't seen a movie like this in a really long time where every scene is kind of like asking you to interpret what's going on and like what the power dynamics are like how someone is wielding their power or like mm -hmm. how they're wielding their identity or like what is someone actually saying when they're saying something or like the mm -hmm. way they're behaving what is that saying about them um and it's asking you to interpret a lot of things at once like it's not an easy film to watch in that way it like requires a lot of audience focus and engagement but that's why i found it so thrilling like i was on the edge of my seat the whole time um because it really is just subtle political moments mm, where yeah. it could be anything from like, yeah, you're kind of like abusing your power as a lecturer in this classroom, but also like the, the very specific power dynamic of this person isn't getting the cello solo when they probably should be. And it's all because of like a preferential treatment slash like sexual <laughs> potential abuse case. Like... So there's just like a million things going on at once in each scene. I think what's so smart about it is that Todd Field doesn't write Lydia Tarr as a genius. And I think that's kind of what like a lot of people have misinterpreted about it from the beginning is that she's, you know, positioned as this woman who's in a very high and powerful position, but she's also kind of an idiot. The things mm, that oh, she yeah. does and the way that she speaks, she's very clearly kind of dumb. Um, and that's what I love about it because that feels so real, like... One of the tweet examples that was going around recently is like how she thinks that deleting an email is gonna <laughs> help her in any way because like yeah yeah it's not gonna delete from the other end like yeah um, she's, I, she's just kind of obtuse um, and like full of herself uh, and I think it's great. I think it's also the hubris of power. She's she she thinks she's too powerful. Yeah yeah yeah. She she believes her own hype for sure. Well yeah, and I think the it kind of discusses power is so interesting because I think she f she just feels that she's entitled to the mistakes or the mm -hmm. abuses that other people that men and before her have made or mm -hmm. executed um the the second time I watched it I realized that that was clear from kind of minute one and so yeah I think it like it gets better each time I watch it because you, there are little things to notice so I just yeah. love it I think it's great 
I think it's great too. I love what you said about Kate Blanchett. I think this performance, I agree with you in that this performance has sort of a fluidity and a natural vibe that you don't really see um, in her other performances. Um, and, you know, when I think a lot of people say, well, she inhabited the role, but I think this time she really does. Um, I love the rhythm of it. I think the movie has this wonderful rhythm um, that it starts with these long sort of static scenes where you're just moving um, along with her when she's in control. And as and that rhythm keeps changing as she loses control and then it becomes complete chaos when she gets to Asia in the last part of the scene where like the scenes are shorter and they're like chaotic and you don't know. And they're kind of a joke. And I, I just love the rhythm of it, which is also the screenplay, but also I think the direction. Um, yeah. And it's a movie like, um, I remember thinking of it as a puzzle um, that you have to put along as you go along. Um, and it's a movie that rewards the more you see it. I've seen it, I don't know, four times, I think. And every time I yeah. discover like little things that I haven't noticed in the previous movie. Um, and I think why it got nominated is like for both Star and Banshees, like my fellow critics have really come to these movies and said, this is what we love. And that's part of it. I mean, it won New York, LA, National Society, London as... Um, Focus Features keeps emailing me that this is the third or fourth movie in the history that won these four major critics' uh, bodies. <laughs> well, but it's true. They should say that, and they should say it um, if they're trying to win Oscars and all of that. The critics came for it, but I also think of all these movies. We talked about how all these smaller movies, Banshee's Fableman's, Triangle of Sadness, Tar, don't have, you know, box office. People didn't go see them. Like, even if you just compare it to other Kate Blanchett movies, like, this made um le like about 10% of what Blue Jasmine made, which was the last movie she like was winning all the awards for. And I know 2013 is very different than 2023, 2022. Um, but still, like box office wise, but this movie has such a cultural footprint. Everybody yeah. talks about it. And now I it's on Peacock and more people are talking about it. And the memes are never ending. Yeah, I think it's one of those things too where, so when I was at my previous job. Um, someone who I was working with got to see a preview of it and I asked him what he thought. And he was like, oh, it was, it was amazing. It's a very New York movie. And I didn't really know what that meant at first, but then I watched it and I was like, the only people who are going to enjoy this <laughs> are people who affiliate themselves with a coastal elite. Like not to sound like a Republican, but you know what I mean? Yeah, like it's a very, yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. much like it has a specific tone and appeal and the jokes that it makes and the references that it makes. And I was like, this is going to make no money at all. Yeah. But I think I think like the people who will like it have seen it already, you know, um, and that's fine. I'm down with things having a small but dedicated audience. Yeah. But I know that's not how business works, so I can understand <laughs> why yeah. that's not And the audience is so dedicated. Like people who like Tar are so dedicated. They can't stop talking about it. They can't stop telling other people about it and they can't stop making memes and jokes and just sharing things. And the whole thing about Lydia Tarr being real and the so many, funny. Uh, so funny, like all the- Brain rot. <laughs> yes, it's so funny. So I think culturally, like maybe it only, the only other movie of these 10 that has as much of a cultural footprint as Star is probably Everything Everywhere All At Once. Those two movies yeah. have their- sort Top Gun, of maybe. 
maybe Top Gun, yeah. There are dedicated fans who can't stop talking about them, can't tell other people about them. Um, I know a lot of people in my life when I tell me to shut up about Tar, but I will never. Uh, yeah. I think a good analogy is like, to me, is Phantom Thread, mm. which yeah. I think probably was also the best movie of its year, but that didn't really win anything. I don't think Tar will win a lot, but I think will last longer than a lot of these films will and yeah. make more like best of lists and things like that yeah um down the line and you know to your point about earlier um you talked about you know the academy nominated the blockbusters this is the movies they want to nominate but they found the space to nominate the critical favorite and they found the space to nominate the movie from their most beloved director most beloved director who's alive and they found space to nominate the movie the Europeans um, gave their most prestigious award to. These 10 are sort of representative of the year, um, which kind of never happens sometimes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So. It's pretty surprising. It's not a bad 10. No, I mean, not at I'm all. sure everybody will have their little gripes with it, but I mean, as I do as well, but yeah. So we're going to do a, so as our, you know, we both love Betty Davis. Betty Davis is one of her most famous lines is what a dump. What a dump. Let's dump a movie from these 10. If you were to dump one movie out of these 10 to make the list um, better, perfect, more aligned, whatever it is, whatever your um, thinking is, um, and what movie would you add? Um Okay, I'm going to dump Top Gun. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but I don't even know if this is possible, but I'm adding a documentary, sure. which is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Oh, I love it, too. Let's do it. Great. Yeah. Um, I just think that was fantastic. And I wish that, you know, documentaries could be considered the best of the year because that would be up there for me. Yeah. So I thought about Top dumping Top Gun 2 because it's my number 10. But I think I'm going to be a little bit more audacious and maybe um, get some enemies if they're listening to this podcast. But I'm going to dump Women Talking. Uh, I had a feeling it was coming. <laughs> um, I don't think you'll make enemies. I don't, I don't know that that film has like too many stands. But... And I'll add Saint Omer by Alice Diop because I think it does everything that maybe women talking, in my opinion, tried to do better um, and with more empathy and with better aesthetic choices um, from uh, from a directorial um, standpoint. And the performances um, there are just amazing. The performance of Gustavo Malanda, I think, you know, Kate Blanchett aside, nobody has acted better than her in St. Omer. Um, and we need, and you know, we... The one movie that it's kind of not American or from the British islands is Strangle of Sadness, but it's still in English. We need um, more representation from the rest of the world. So let's go St. Omer instead of women talking. Yeah, I'd back that too. We'll switch out both of them. <laughs> yeah, good. And then that would be a perfect 10. Yep. So next up for us is we're going to talk about the acting categories as a group. Not one category specifically, but all of them as a cohort, we'll say. Um, and you can look out for that next week. Yeah. And until then, you can find me um, on 
Twitter at me underscore says and on Instagram at mortada underscore e. Or you can read my reviews at Variety or the AV Club. And you can find me on YouTube at Be Kind Rewind and Twitter uh, BK Rewind. And then Instagram BK underscore Rewind. Wow. <laughs> and until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>